0: Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message from Real Life Community, where we talk about connecting with God and others, growing in Christlikeness, and sharing God's life with the world. My name is Sarah Comer, and I serve each week as Connections Pastor, making sure that you know that there is a God and a community that loves you and wants to go through the seasons of life with you. The easiest way to connect with us from right where you are is by downloading our free Real Life Community app from your app store. You can also find us at reallifecommunity.org, and we would love to meet you on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you. A series on James. If you would like to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, and James chapter 3. Because James, every once in a while, he'll, ha- he'll have what seems to be like little nuggets of teaching, and then he'll revisit it later on. And so he talks about this this concept we're going to be talking about this morning in a couple different places. James chapter 1, towards the end, and James chapter 3. Maybe in your Bible, like it is in mine, that's on the same, like you could open it up and just kind of have it all in front of you. And, uh, and we'll get into the actual scripture here in a little bit, but I want to start off the message by talking about something that a lot of people who have any sort of hobbies will be familiar with. Uh, I think, maybe you could tell me, I need some feedback on this. Have you ever heard of something called a gearhead? I'm looking at you, Clayton, because I know because you play guitar and it's like runs rampant in the guitarist world. You know, Uh, a lot of hobbies have it, though. For me, I have a hobby of photography and it's really rampant in, in the photography world as well. A gearhead is somebody who takes up a hobby and they find it uh, like just their passion to become an expert in the field of all the gear that is necessary for that hobby. And they, a lot of times, not only become experts in just the gear, but they accumulate lots of gear. And, and the hobby for them is as much of the accumulation of the gear and the piling up of all the stuff for the hobby as it is actually practicing the hobby. You know what I'm talking about, Clayton? He's raising it the. Guy. You guys should see Kim looking at him right now. Anyway. Um, um, so, but in photography, this is the way it worked with me. I remember when I first got into photography, uh, the, the temptation was huge. You'd get these B&H photo online uh, catalogs and they were this thick and you started into it and you're like, how am I ever going to take a good picture if you need all of this stuff, you know? They, because there are all these lenses for different focal lengths and different applications and flashes and camera bags and straps and filters and all sorts of software and computers and, and everything that you need. And it can be overwhelming. But I remember at one point I was reading an online blog looking for gear probably, trying to figure out what, what the next thing I ought to buy. And, and this pro was writing this blog and he said, Do Don't become a gearhead. You can spend all of your life compiling and piling up all of the gear to become a photographer and never actually take any photos. Don't be one of those people. So this is some of the best advice I had because I ever got, because I had a 10-year-old hand-me-down camera that was a gift from my neighbor, uh, the camera body, and a lens that was literally the cheapest lens that I could find to buy. And so these were the two things that I had working for me. And he said, all you need is a camera body and a lens. It doesn't matter what you have. And then you need to go start taking pictures. You need to start taking pictures because your pile of gear doesn't make you a photographer or a guitarist or a rock climber or a runner or any of your hobbies or any of our hobbies that we ever have. Taking photographs does. It's the application of what you have that matters. You could even imagine somebody saying, show me that you're a photographer by your gear and I'll show you that I'm a photographer by showing you my photos. Now, this is starting to sound like something James would say, doesn't it? James, uh, one of his key themes is it's the application of our faith and our beliefs that makes all the difference. Because maybe you guys don't realize this, but Christianity has gearheads too. Did you know this? Those of us who love to pile up all the right beliefs and parse out all the doctrines and win all the classroom or online theological debates, but who rarely allow all that piled up knowledge to make its way into the transformation of our daily lives. James says it like this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. You could pile up all the right doctrines. You could memorize the articles of faith and the whole rest of the manual in the church of the Nazarene for that matter, if you want to. But if you never learn to actually do what it says, James says, you're deceiving yourselves. He goes on and he says, anyone who listens and he uses this metaphor of a a person looking in the mirror. He says, anyone who listens to the word, but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror but then goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. You know, imagine that now for us, I know that's like a, A normal part of our day to get up and look in the mirror for a few seconds or hours in the morning before we leave, and then glance at every reflective surface that we find uh, throughout the day just to make sure that it all looks right and normal or whatever. Uh, But in James's day, it was real rare to see your reflection. Maybe when you got to the bucket in the morning, you'd look down in a in in the the water surface there and kind of see a vague reflection of yourself, or you'd get a piece of shined up bronze in the temple or something, and you'd walk past it and say, "Oh, yeah, that's me," and then you'd walk away. And it was easy to forget what you look like But this is his his metaphor. I love, I was reading a guy uh, named Andy Stanley, who's a pastor down in Atlanta, uh, and he's talking about this passage, and I love something that he says about it. He talks about that moment in the morning when we see ourselves in the mirror, and he says, there's this, oh, wow, moment. (laughs) Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, This, this, oh, wow, moment, like, like, I should do something about that before I leave, you know, like, and some of you are like, some of you go into the mirror, and you're like, oh, wow, you know, like, Uh, you know, like that kind of thing. I'm good, you know. But, but for the rest of us, we get in and we look in the mirror and we see, oh, wow, I should do something about that. And there is this like primping and tweaking and picking boogers and pulling out hairs. And <laughs> just for you guys, not for me, but like for most of us. Um, but imagine if we went and we looked at ourselves in the mirror and we saw something that we didn't like. And then we were like, I know I should do something about that, but I'm not going to. I'm gonna go away and forget that I saw it and then go on with my daily life. What if we just thought the oh wow was enough? The feeling that we ought to do something about it. Unfortunately, this is like a lot of folks' experience of faith. The word, the scripture is held up in front of us at church in a sermon in the daily verse that pops up on your phone or whatever and it reminds us of something that if practiced... If practiced, it would be life-giving. This is what the word does for us. But we get used to listening or reading and saying, oh, wow, that's true, isn't it? I should, I should probably do something about that. Oh, wow, I need to be kinder to my wife and kids. Oh, wow, I need to forgive that person who wronged me. Oh, wow, I need to give up the alcohol. Oh, wow, this pornography is rotting my soul. Oh, wow, I need to stop seeking revenge. Oh, wow, I need to recommit to generosity or to not having sex with somebody who's not my spouse. And because of the oh, wow moment, we think we've had a religious experience. This is how it works, right? Because for a lot of us, religion is tied up to just like feeling guilty generally about something. And so we have this oh wow moment and we think we ought to do something different and because we feel guilty or something, we feel like oh yeah, I've been religious now and we go on with our day. But if we never then act on those things that we see, they're meaningless. James says we're deceiving ourselves I love how Andy describes how we do this as Christians. I'm going to quote something from a sermon that he, that he uh, gave a little while ago. He says, you know what we do? If you're a religious person, come on. And if you're not, go ahead and just point your finger at us. We deserve it. This is for Christians, right? This is uh, some of our own confessional stuff right here. It's like a guy who gets up in the morning and goes, this is how we do religious talk. I really need to shave, but I don't shave. I just go to work and somebody says, Andy, did you shave this morning? No, I really need to shave. You're right. And then I go to small group and they're like, Andy, did you shave today? And no, thank you. Would you pray for me? Because I didn't. I know I need to. I saw it. Somebody else pointed it out. Sandra said something out about it. Could we just pray for me tonight? Because I really need to shave. Let's just pray that Andy will shave. You're like, We'll just go do it. No, I don't actually want to do something. I just want to feel bad about it. I want it to be a prayer request. I want other people to pray for me and talk about me behind my back. And it's just like, look in the mirror and deal with what you see, right? Ah, okay, I'm done with the quote here. That guy feels like he's had a religious experience. He feels bad about it. He's asked for prayer on it. Shoot, he was even at small group when he did it. But he did nothing with it. And so James says... He's deceiving himself. James goes on, but whoever, in verse 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Now let's just stop right here before we go on. James is saying, whoever looks intently. Now, Uh, I, I should say this, when James talks about listening to the word, he uses a particular word that was a technical word in the Greek world that meant someone who was a passionate student of someone else. So like a listener in his world wouldn't just be a casual observer. It's not just somebody that's like nominally Christian or kind of believes something that's just kind of pop theology or something. This is somebody who's committed to listening and learning, right? Uh, So that's just general. But then he takes it a step further and goes a little, anyone who looks intently into the perfect law, those of you who have ever like pulled out one of those magnifying mirrors, uh, those of you girls know what I'm talking about or guys who are married and there's this circular mirror and you look at it and you're like, whoa, uh, because you see every pore magnified. So this is the kind of looking that James, I think, is talking about here. Those of us who like, you know, like just really go the extra mile. You're in church every Sunday. You're listening to sermons on your drive to work. You're in small group. You go to Bible study, maybe two Bible studies. You've got your daily verse on your phone. You read your devotional. You have your quiet time. You've gotten out the magnifying glass mirror and looked intent intently into the word that can transform your life if you'll let it and he says uh, who look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom now I have to do this quickly because this is bonus content uh, and we've only got a little bit of time but I want to talk about the perfect law that gives freedom because does that sound like an oxymoron to anybody else a law that gives freedom how do you restrict somebody's freedom and it end up giving freedom at the same time. And when James is talking about this, he's talking about all of the Old Testament law as interpreted and fulfilled by Jesus right so when he's talking about the perfect law that gives freedom he's talking about this the law that god had laid down throughout the old testament and then jesus took it and interpreted it and put it into practice and showed us what it was like to live it out in the flesh and then fulfilled it in his life and his death and his resurrection james says this is a law that gives freedom now how does a law which typically restricts my freedom in some way become something that gives freedom Think about this in everyday terms. Sometimes we need laws to help keep us safe and make sure we all understand how to get the most out of how we're living uh, or, or where we're living. So for example, we have laws that tell us which side of the road to drive on. This is a law that restricts which side of the road that I'm going to drive on if I'm going to follow the law, but it creates a world where we've got the freedom to get in a car and go out and drive somewhere without wondering if somebody else is going to hit us coming in the same lane. Does that make sense? So a law restricts freedom, but it also creates an environment that can bring freedom as well. God's law works in similar ways. These aren't arbitrary laws to restrict our lives. They are for our good and flourishing. Life is better when we don't covet and cheat on our spouses and nurse grudges and seek revenge. These are the kinds of laws that God wants to address so that we can take things that ultimately will rob our freedom and put some restrictions on those so that we can live a more full and whole and free and peaceful life. Sometimes laws... Let's be honest, in the moment, don't feel like freedom giving. Uh, Like when I was 15 and I realized that the, the word of God had told me that I was to save sex until marriage, that did not feel freeing to me when I was 15 years old. That felt very restrictive, right? But that kind of law is a law that has ended up creating all sorts of freedom in a marriage. To be able to enjoy God's good gift there, right? So that's one example. We could go through hundreds of different e- examples. It creates an opportunity there to bring freedom where if we had ignored the law of God, it would bring all sorts of other things that would not be life giving to us. The ways of God lead to increasing freedom over time. Hear this The ways of God lead to increasing freedom. Over time, the way of doing whatever I feel like, which our culture a lot of times describes as freedom, the way of doing whatever I feel like, which may seem like freedom in the moment, actually leads over time to restricted freedom. And James says, when you trace it out to its end, doing whatever you want, giving your desires free reign wherever you want them to go, ultimately ends when it's full grown in death. Okay, that was the side thing. Back to the main thing. James goes on, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Let me highlight a few things here. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it. This is not a once-off kind of obedience that will bring freedom. This isn't something where you see it in the mirror and you're like, I should do something, I should shave one time and then never again for the rest of my life, unless you're growing a super cool beard and then go for it. Uh, But like, this is not a one thing, this is a whoever continues in it, makes it a way of life. Not forgetting what they've heard, so you're committing this to memory, making it a regular part of the practice and But doing it, and there's that action language again, because again, we serve a God of action as well. This is not a, a, a world that we just exist in some theoretical spiritual world of our mind and our heart and our soul. This is a, a world of action. James is echoing his bro, other older brother Jesus here, reminding those early Christians of Jesus' word. In John uh, 14, verse 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. And then in Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, a collection of Jesus' most regular teachings and his take on the law, when Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Now, I'd never thought about this before this week, but think about this. Apparently, it's easier to build on sand. It's easier to build on sand because you just plop down whatever structure you want onto the sand, and the sand has to give around the structure that you're building. Anybody can build on sand, anything you want of any kind of structure. It doesn't even have to be a sound structure on the sand. But if you build on the rock, the thing that you build has to adjust to the rock because the rock doesn't change. So there are gonna be times where you're building and you're like, I want my building to go this way and the rock says, no, it can't go that way. And you have to say, okay, I'm gonna adjust that so that it can be secure on the rock. But here's why we do this. Because then when the storms come and the wind blows against the building and the waves come up and crash against the side of it, those who build on the sand, whatever they want, that structure, even if it's the most magnificent looking structure from our perspective in the world, if it's on the sand, it's not going to last. It'll get washed away. But you can build the most humble structure on a rock and it will stand the test of all of the things that come against it. So do what it says and be blessed. At this point, we might become overwhelmed. I mean, have you seen the word, Eric, you're saying? There's a couple thousand pages in here and 75% of it, I don't understand. Okay, maybe 90% of it, I'll open it up and I'm like, what language was this written in and, and what am I supposed to do with all these chronological lists and genealogies and all of this kind of stuff? How do I do what it says? Where do I start? And James says, you know what? You don't have to have all the gear to have a life-transforming, God-honoring faith. You can do wonders by practicing just a few things. And so he says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He mentions three things here. Keep a tight rein on your tongue. You're like, man, he chooses that? Like, that doesn't sound very spiritual, but remember, James says your tongue is like the rudder of your ship, and if you can learn to control it, your whole body will follow. And then he says, look after widows and orphans We remember in the Old Testament that God was a defender of the weak and the widow and the orphan and the the fatherless and the, the immigrant and the foreigner, that God looked out for people who had trouble looking out for themselves. And James says this ought to be a part of our character as God's people as well. And then he says, listen, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Which in chapter four, he's going to come back and kind of describe specifically, he's talking about motives of competition, like feeling like you're competing against everybody else, personal ambition, trying to get ahead of everybody else, and accumulation, piling up all sorts of stuff in this world. All of these things are the roots, he says later on, of community conflict. When James says these three simple things, it reminds me of that pro photographer that gave me that advice, all those uh, years ago, just go out and get yourself some basic equipment and put it into practice, and you'll be miles ahead of all the people who have all the learning in the world, all the gear in the world. You know what I did after I read that photographer's blog? I went out and started taking pictures with that super ancient artifact of a camera body and the cheapest lens that I could find. And I took this picture um, after I started shooting. This is when I first started, and it's still one of my favorite photos because it's the application that matters. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we want to thank you this morning for your word. And now we pray that the word that has been planted in us that we would humbly receive it and that would grow up in us to create all sorts of real practical Monday through Saturday kinds of application. May we not be hearers of the word even listeners of the word even intent listeners of the word only but may we Do what it says. We love you, Jesus. We pray that you would find that in the way that we obey your teaching today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? I want to invite you. uh, In just a moment, we're going to come forward and receive communion. Uh, And so we've got folks who are going to be on both sides, so you can make an aisle down each side. If you're a guest with us today, we would love for you to take part in communion. It's our opportunity to remember the body and blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for us so that we could be in relationship with God, be forgiven, have hope of eternity. Uh, The only thing we ask is that you're actively seeking to follow Jesus. Maybe even this morning in your heart, you're like, yeah, I want to do that. I want to do that. The word's speaking. It's pulling me. I want to respond. Here's how you do what it says right now. Uh, you come forward. You can do that. We'll receive the elements. Go back to our seats. And then Sierra is going to lead us in taking the elements. The kids are going to be joining us. And In fact, Byron, can you let them know uh, uh, back in the kids area that the we need the kids to come in and join us for communion? Um, And then we, uh, Sierra's going to lead us in praying over our children and teachers uh, because school starts this week for a lot of us and we're going to bless some backpacks and some kids um, before they leave today. So uh, band, go ahead and come forward. Uh, No, the band's not coming. There's a song on. So those of you who are coming to serve communion, go ahead and come forward. And uh, when you hear the music, you can come forward. All right, cue the music.